There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town at the ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. And with me today is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and it's a great day for law enforcement based on the fact that this arrest was made. Absolutely. Before we get going, I just want to wish everyone, all our fans, all our supporters, all our friends, Everyone that's been following this case, I just want to wish everyone a happy new year. I mean, there's a certain amount of stress in both covering this case as we do and even watching this case. I mean, it's uh, this has been a long, a long time. You know, uh, November 13th, this occurred. I mean, not long in regards to solving a homicide. I think there was a lot of people that were very impatient with this, including myself after a while. I started actually... Uh, not believing the media, but I was getting their impatience from hearing them every day. When are they going to solve this? Is this a cold case? Is this, this, is, is this, that? I mean, this case has all the elements of, you know, a horrific murder. I mean, anytime there's a murder with a knife, we spoke uh, ad nauseum about the up close and personal nature of using a knife in a murder. And as a result, look, uh, the Moscow Police Department knew that from the very beginning on November 13th, that this was beyond the scope of their small police department. So they immediately called in for reinforcements in, in the way of the FBI and in the way of the Idaho State Police. And they did an amazing job. And one of the biggest things, and I criticized them myself, I'm not, look, those without sin, let them throw the first stone, as they say, you know. And I'm not without sin, too. I started listening and getting impatient, too. However, I understand what it takes to run a real professional homicide investigation. And this one was was run very well. And they didn't give in to, A, the families of the victims, which is tough to do because you want to treat them with such kid gloves. But every time they told the family something, the father, uh, Steve Gonsalves, would go tell, he'd be on every media channel telling what he had learned. So they were smart. And folks, I see everyone, they don't understand the term keeping it close to the vest. I've seen people saying keeping it close to the best, keeping it close to the nest. No, vest, meaning like wearing a vest, meaning keeping it close to your body. That's what that means. That's where that term came from. I think it comes from playing cards, Bill, when people would hide cards in their vest. You want to keep uh, everything close. So, yeah, I think uh, it was good that you explained that because maybe people weren't getting it. No, I don't think people understood it. And, and rightfully so. There's people from other countries, other cultures, and they don't get American slang. And we try to explain our slang because we use a lot of it in uh, 
we also suffer from a New York accent. So <laughs> not suffer. Most people Forget like about it. it. You know, some people like it. Some people are like, oh, I don't like listening to those New York. Then, you know, you can go. There's 200 more uh, YouTube channels. You know, you don't have to listen to us. Anyway, this case has every element that you could possibly find in a homicide investigation. Four college students, young, beautiful kids, three of them beautiful young girls, one a 20-year-old guy in the prime of his life, you know, going to college. <sighs> Obviously, no identity as far as someone seeing him. So we have to go on to physical evidence. And I've said, I say in every one of our uh, streams, every one of our broadcasts, investigation is equal parts art and science. And the art part of it is outstanding police work, which you saw demonstrated. And it's still going to be dememonstrated in this case. This case is so far from over. There's still tons 100%. of work to do. And the other part of it, in what we predicted early on is gonna was was and is gonna solve this case, is the science. And as we said, and as most people in the know, not the YouTube, you know, entertainers that just throw all kinds of shit out there, the people in the know that have done this kind of work before said he will have left DNA in that crime scene. And when I asked Ed Wallace and Barbara Butcher, Ed Wallace, probably one of the best crime scene detectives, retired NYPD first grader, and Barbara Butcher, retired chief of staff of the New York City OCME, a medical legal death investigator. When I asked them, what was the percent you think that the killer left his DNA in the crime scene? And they said 99%. So I took that like, they're going to find his DNA. And we, of course, expressed, which you've heard other people say too, that when someone kills with a knife, they usually, 99% of the time, cut themselves. And that apparently occurred in this case. You know, So there's so much more evidence that we don't know about. But the science of this undoubtedly identified this guy. The other thing is that I am hearing, not confirmed by the police, that guess what they also used? Genetic genealogy which is a relatively, I had some wise ass in the chat the other day. Oh, pop, you don't know what you're talking. I called me pop. I'm like, Oh, pop, really? <laughs> I'm going to stop calling you. Oh, I'm pop. That's that's Sergeant pop to you. You know, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I got a little annoyed at that. I, uh, I ejected that guy from our chat, you know, and never to return. He's, he's, he's sent to bogey land, you know, anyway, uh, genetic genealogy. So, it's, I would love to know the full explanation of that. And later on, we're going to play a little bit of C.C. Moore, who's probably the number one genetic genealogist in the country. And she was on uh, uh, News Nation with uh, Chris Cuomo. But you would think he was the expert and not her. But uh, she is a real uh, genius with genetic genealogy. And I was pleased to hear that they were able to use that science help ID this perpetrator. The other thing, again, we're hearing, nothing is confirmed, but I think some of these bigger news stations get some inside information. Uh, they get the call, you know. They have sources. Yeah, on the DL. That's the down low. Or they get it surreptitiously, which is one of my favorite words. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up that word. Because I'm going to use that word in a minute. I'm going to explain it too. But. Okay. 
So I think they get so anyway, what we know is they apparently had been on this perpetrator for at least four or five days. Yeah. Following him to Pennsylvania. So if they had it in a, a DNA, unidentified DNA exemplar from the crime scene, and they were able to surreptitiously obtain his DNA by following him, say he took a soda or a drink and threw out the cup, they could swab that cup and it's perfectly legal and obtain his DNA that way. And boom, they could have gotten a match in those four days. I don't know if that's the case, but that's our distinct possibility how they did it. Now, knowing all of this stuff, they get to Pennsylvania at 0300 hours at 3 a.m. in the morning. They serve or they enforce a search warrant on his home. Now, what, what are they looking for? Obviously, they're looking for him, first of all. They get him. Guess what? His, crime, his body is also a crime scene. Let's look for old wounds. Does he have any cuts on his hands or on his body? Look, let's look for that stuff or any signs of trauma anywhere on his body. Photograph all of that stuff. Of course, swab him for DNA because now he has no, um, he has no choice. They're taking his DNA. The other thing is search the house. Uh, and I would think the search warrant might limit the, um, the scope of that search to areas, of course, where he would either inhabit or common areas in the whole house. Lots of times judges will not let you search the entire house. And it's defined in the search warrant areas that you can search. I would think a judge that wrote up this search warrant would be very liberal in his you, you you would think they'd probably include all areas where a knife could be secreted the weapon the murder weapon could be secreted so probably like you said they'd be liberal in a case like this well i remember the old uh the old saying you can't put an elephant in a uh, glove uh, glove compartment a cigar box right? yeah yeah so what that means folks is it's you could search areas where conceivably the knife right. could fit so you can't just use that to search every area yeah. Use it as subterfuge. That's another police word. Here we go with the canonism. <laughs> That's actually a, a professional police word. Anyway, Phil, I've been talking for a while. Yeah, I'm going to uh, move on, but again, give you. A, I'm going to give you a chance to speak. Well, the first thing I want to say is I want to uh, just applaud the law enforcement agencies, the Moscow Police, the Idaho State Police, and the FBI because they acted very surreptitiously. And I really, uh, I know we we kidded around about that, but uh, had they not acted surreptitiously, and, and I looked it up because I'm amongst college professors here, but in uh -huh. a way that attempts to avoid notice or attention secretively, which I knew, but I wanted to get the exact definition. And had they not done that, we're dealing with a, a, a perpetrator that was a, a PhD student for criminal justice. So if they didn't act in a surreptitious manner in the investigation and keep everything very close to the vents, uh, vest, they could have tipped off this perpetrator. And you're dealing with someone that obviously very intelligent and you're dealing with someone that really knew, and we're going to go through all the things that he did. He, he sent out surveys to other criminals to try and get the mindset and the emotion and the psychological background of what would be going through a perpetrator's mind when you're committing a crime? So again, this 
individual studied what he was about to do. Okay. Talk about premeditation. I think there's no doubt that he's premeditated every move he made. And I said many times on this broadcast, and I said it the other night on Ashley Banfield, I believe that the location and the victims were specific, which I think we have, that's a no brainer at this point, since he was on three of the victim social media. And we're going to find out maybe more. Um, also the weapon I said was very specific and I think he picked that weapon because as you know, Bill, with deadly physical force, you want to, uh, inflict maximum blood loss to incapacitate the individual. And I think that's why he chose that specific weapon. Now, with regard to the weapon real quick, even though it hasn't been recovered and I'm sure they're going to map out his location if he had his cell phone on him when he left the location to see if they could search the areas along the way if he threw the weapon out. However, I don't think that's going to be the case with this psychopath. It's probably going to be that he kept the weapon or perhaps maybe he buried it close to the home. But whatever it is, they're going to look for that weapon. But I doubt very highly that someone in his life that he walked through his life and, and people that he met did not observe that weapon, whether it be a family member or a friend. He didn't keep that weapon secreted 100%. Someone had to see it and he also had to get it. He had to uh, uh, purchase it or attain it some way, somehow. So like you said in the early part of your statement, Bill, the investigation, now that we have a perpetrator in custody, things can slow down a bit, but there's a lot, lot more work to do in this case to nail the, uh, put the nails into the coffin of this low life psychopath that killed these four innocent, beautiful kids. And even though we're feeling a little bit more uh, relaxed about it and we're, we're happy that an arrest was made, those families still have to go through a ton more trauma. I mean, they're living with this every day. They're never going to be the same again, but now they're going to have to go through the trial process. And I'm sure it's going to be difficult for them, but you know what? At least we have the perpetrator in custody. He's not going to be able to kill anymore. Educated Pookie, I wanted to answer your question. If they did genealogy, they don't need his DNA. They absolutely do need his DNA, 100%. Because his DNA, his personal DNA, is what's going to be charged in court, not his family's. And they also need his DNA to compare it to forensic cases in CODIS. I explain what that is. There's crime scenes that contain DNA that have not been identified. DNA. So potentially, could he have done another murder and not been identified for it, but they have DNA from that murder? Again, that's not identified. Now his DNA goes into CODIS, right. and he's compared with crime scenes all over the country. And Absolutely. if they get a hit, guess what? As Phil loves to say, he's in the trick bag for it. So educated Pookie, thank you, but that's incorrect. Well, uh, I, I think the genealogy part of it was what would lead them to the perpetrator. But you're 100% right, Bill. Just because the, the genealogy led to him doesn't mean that they're not going to take a, a sample of his DNA and do exactly what you just said, put it into the CODA system. There's a very good chance that he may have killed before. And I think there's a 100% chance that had he not been arrested, he was going to kill again. Yeah, it's sort of scary uh, who it turns out that that this guy is and his personality. I'm going to play a little bit. This is Chris Swecker, an FBI agent, and he speaks upon um, what we're exactly talking about right now, uh, about could he have killed before? And we're going to play a little bit of this and see what he has to say. 
And it is a little bit scary. Let's play. Fox News alert. Authorities in Pennsylvania arresting 28-year-old Brian Koberger, a graduate student in criminology at Washington State, for the brutal slayings of Ford University of Idaho students. Former FBI Assistant Director Chris Swecker joins us now. Chris, we're glad to have you on the program this morning. Um, you're the type of perspective that we need. So just at the outset, you, you have the same details that many of us do this morning, perhaps a few more. What are your initial reactions on the arrest of this suspect? Yeah, it's a it's a good police, uh, piece of police work here, detective work. Uh, they did the gumshoe things that you have to do to solve a case like this. I think DNA played a very, very significant role. In fact, I, I know it did, um, leading to the identification of the suspect. And that's really, you know, the forensics, I think, are going to loom large in a circumstantial case like this and proving the case as well. No eyewitness. Here we, here we now have a graduate student in criminology, a Ph. I'm sorry, a PhD student in criminology, who bears so much resemblance to ten, Ted Bundy, it's, it's scary. They were both students uh, at a high level. Bundy was a, a law student. Uh, Kohlberger was a criminal justice PhD. They both moved away from their initial uh, universities, to, I believe, to get away from their crime, their earlier crimes, and as, as did Kohlberger and Bundy both. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of days and see if they're I, I hate to say it, but other victims. So, Chris, uh, just following up on that, that's a that's an interesting observation on yours. Do, do you have a suspicion then this wouldn't be his first crime? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a behavioral scientist, but those that, that the FBI behavioral scientists have been studying this for a long time, and people like this don't just spontaneously combust overnight. I mean, there, there's a buildup to it. There are urges, those urges are, are latent and then they're played out in, in stalking and, and breaking and entering and, and creeping through people's houses and that sort of thing. And, you know, peeping into windows and that, that urge becomes more overt at some point. Now he's 28 years old. I find it hard to believe that his first kill is a, is a violent quadruple homicide using a, a large hunting knife and you know, it, it just doesn't doesn't right. ring true to me. I think there there is a build up to this. I'm afraid that if you look back at his previous college at, at uh, DeSalle, I think is the name of it. Right. Um, you might find some history there. Right. That's a college back in Pennsylvania. Um, I have a limited amount of time with you. I want to see if I can fit these two questions in. So at the at the the amount of information we have right now, you mentioned the behavioral sciences unit at the FBI. How odd are the details around this crime? Meaning you look for patterns and you're just mentioning one of the patterns, previous crimes. Is this an outlier in your mind right now or does it fit sort of the proverbial profile of a of a killer? Yeah, I don't think he's an outlier in the context of mass murderers or serial killers. They they have this urge to kill. He, you know, they can act normal for for a period of time, and then they all, they go psychotic. Then they go back to normal, or at least normal on the outward, you know, looking inside. So I, I don't, right. you know, I think he fits a pretty a pretty common profile in the context of serial killers and mass murderers. So really quickly, then, Chris, explain. And I know this is 30 seconds if you can. Genealogical DNA. He left DNA behind at the crime scene. I'm assuming that means he has no criminal uh, records to tie that DNA. To, but you can find in his family tree, perhaps somewhere in the government database, DNA and trace back down to him. 
Yeah, there, there's a new thing called forensic genealogy, and the FBI has pioneered that. There are commercial DNA databases now, as we all know. There, you know, we can we right. can pay the money and we can get our own genealogy, and people do that all the time. Well, those across all those different companies, there's a significant database DNA and DNA of relatives ha has built up, and with a subpoena or a search warrant, you can go into those databases. So I, I, I think that's the type wow. of DNA that played a significant role here. Unbelievable. Uh, um, an amazing, amazing tool, genetic genealogy. And, you know, I, I see that a lot of people, um, look, it's been used to catch numerous serial killers, but the science is still relatively young. It's, it's relatively new. And I don't know if, in, I mean, uh, Chris Swecker was saying the FBI uh, pioneered this. I don't believe that's true. I think actually I the private sector, the private yeah. sector pioneered this. And yeah. in fact, that's why the databases are run by the private sector. So I don't think that's true that the FBI pioneered. Look, I'm just saying, I think it, the private sector did. And they, that's they amazing in itself. They may have been one of the first law enforcement agencies that uh, presented a subpoena to the uh, genealogy companies, and, and maybe that's what he meant. But, yeah, I, I caught that too, Bill. I don't think that that's correct. No, but you know something? It's it's an amazing, amazing tool. So I believe his father was in the service, and at some point he may have had to give his his DNA. So when they ran the DNA from the crime scene, maybe it would come up that this is, you know, I don't know the exact percentage of a match. But it was a match enough to go look into the family tree and say, oh, he's got a son that's 28 years old and his son goes to Washington University, which is 15 minutes from Idaho University. He's a suspect. Yeah. Then, you know, I think the big we talk about smoking gun evidence. I think the big smoking gun evidence in this case was the white Hyundai Alonso, you know. And, and you we heard it. Well, you called it from minute one. When that car went out, you said in my, you said, if I remember correctly, I don't know your exact words, but you said, in my gut, I feel that this is the perpetrator's car. And I think you were right, Bill. Yeah, you know, something I made some good um, hypotheses and guesses on this case, but I also made some wrong ones. You know what you're, you're going to do. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not infallible, but I know the way investigations work. And so do you. And you know when the police are saying something that, you know, you know the white lies they tell. Oh, this is just some witnesses that we're looking to talk to. I mean, how many times have we said that? Person uh, of interest. You know, your name came up in the investigation. Meanwhile, you're talking to the killer. We just got to clear it up. Just come in uh, for, you know, about take like 10 minutes. It's really going to take like 25 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. once you get the guy in. But when they said that, undoubtedly, and look, they, they go – or in when they had the house under surveillance, they see the white Hyundai Elantra in the driveway. I mean, I don't know if I would have been able to hold off. I would have been so excited seeing the Hyundai Elantra. Now, that also is a crime scene. That car has to be processed as a crime scene. Uh, even if you clean up a vehicle, there still could be little specks of blood that you can't see, even if you clean it with alcohol or bleach or whatever you clean it with, that's not apparent to the naked eye. They use a chem chemical called luminol. It brings it out. And if that blood belongs to one of the victims, 
How could it have possibly gotten there any other way? You're so right, Billy. And that car is so, so important because not only blood, there could be hair follicles, there could be fibers. Let's say there's a specific type of carpeting or drapery or a blanket on the bed. And that fiber, we use low cards theory of exchange here, where you go into a crime scene, you bring something in. And when you leave, you take something out. So if you go by that theory, there could be a minor, minute particle of fiber, a hair, like I said, perhaps blood or some type of DNA evidence. And again, uh, you know, in the, the rage that he walked out of that place, he could have made a lot of mistakes and, uh, you know, blood, thrown the knife down. Uh, like you said, even if you clean it up with whatever you use, any solvents, you could still pick up traces of it. And I just want to make a quick comment about some of the things that we said. We were both in the camp of that we believed it was going to be someone that knew the victims, whether it be in the inner circle or in the outer circle. And I think you can consider this guy being in the outer circle of the victim's uh, friends. Um, the other thing we said, we thought he was going to be a local. Now, he wasn't a local by living there, but he was local to the community. He was 15 minutes away in another college. I think there's going to be a good possibility and a good chance that he may have even been inside that location. If not, he definitely reconned the location. I don't think that he just went there without knowing the lay of the uh, the outline, uh, the outlay of the uh, of the location. You know, to go into the location, he probably secreted himself. Was very quiet about it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think he went up to the third floor first and attacked those two victims, and then on the way out, either he was. Uh, accosted by them. They were woken by the noise or perhaps he targeted them as well. But we know for certain that he was on three of the victims, social media, following them on Instagram, I believe it was. And again, there's going to be a lot more investigation done looking into his cell phone, looking into his computer. He had an office at the college uh, at uh, the Washington State University. Uh, they're going to look into that computer. And again, we're going to get a roadmap into what took place prior to uh, the horrible, horrible quadruple homicide. And I think that all of these pieces of the puzzle are going to be put back together. And these are all going to be things that'll be brought out at the, uh, at the trial. And, and we'll get a, we'll get a 100% picture of what we think happened and, uh, what transpired before and even after, uh, this horrible, horrible quadruple homicide. You know, folks, I would almost, um, guarantee that, when he was apprehended, apparently he made some kind of statement uh, to the police, an admission, a, a spontaneous utterance, if you will, uh, saying, oh, am I the only one arrested? And I, I don't know if that's verbatim what he said. That's in, in uh, basically- I think he said, did you arrest anyone else? Did you arrest Something anyone else? else. So yeah, yeah. I, my, in my feelings, he's a slick little uh, fraudster and he did that to throw off the investigation. Could there be someone else involved peripherally? Someone that got rid of evidence from someone that drove the car? I don't know. I think in regards to this murder, I think he acted alone. I really, I really feel that. Uh, when we talk about some of the things we spoke about early on, there's something called geographical profiling. And we um, sort of predicted that the perpetrator would be from the area. From the area, he was 15 minutes away. Uh, in the Washington University area. So that really uh, sort of proves that, yeah, geographical profiling, people or killers commit crimes in near or close to where they live. So he fit that. Other things, um, 
he has no criminal history. Um, he's never been arrested before. I think he got a seatbelt summons a while ago. That's also, when you think about it in a database, that's another way the Hyundai Elantra could have come up in a summons search that this is someone who drives through the area with a Hyundai Elantra who got a summons for driving without his seatbelt on. But that's not an arrest. That's a violation. That's not considered a criminal matter. Um, you know, Billy, with regard to the car, though, where was the car registered? The car may not have been registered in Idaho if he was from Pennsylvania. It may have been registered in Pennsylvania. And those 22,000 white Hyundai Elantras that they came up with, which is quite a lot to me, that sounds a little absurd, um, you know, for one state. But they may not have ever come across the, the right vehicle if it was registered, in fact, in Pennsylvania. Well, you know, there's there's another database they'll fill at colleges. Uh, when you go to a college, yeah. they, they make you register your car with security because they want to know whose car is parked in certain places. Sure. So if the police or the FBI had asked the, the local colleges around for a database of Hyundai Elantras that are registered with their security, that is another investigative resource they could have checked out. I want to play a little bit of uh, C.C. Moore is one of the probably the top genetic genealogists in the country. And she was on uh, Chris Cuomo the other night. I just want to play a little bit of this. They find your DNA if you are not in the system through this ancestral DNA thing. How does that work? What needs to be available to find me through these other people? That's a great question. And so it's very rare that we will find a close family member and certainly not the suspect in our genetic genealogy databases. So what we're looking for are people who share what we consider significant amounts of DNA, but it can be less than 1% of their DNA. If you share only 1% of your DNA, then you're likely third cousins with someone, which means you share your great, great grandparents. And so we get a whole list of people that share segments of DNA with this unknown person we're trying to identify, and we can reverse engineer their family tree by who they're related to. So the only reason two people would share these significant stretches of DNA across their genome is if they have a common ancestor in their family tree. They have. I find this to be uh, fascinating, and what an amazing tool law enforcement. However, there's also some civil liberties in regards to this. A lot of these sites, they require, and they should actually, they require law enforcement to uh, subpoena this information. And sometimes if you go on there and you want to trace your family tree, you can request that it not be released to law enforcement. And I don't know if a subpoena can uh, circumvent that or not, but you can request that when you go on uh, these databases. Billy, think about how you said it's fascinating. A third cousin, if you have a third cousin that's in that database, you could get put into the trick bag or they could start to look at you. So it's really, really fascinating, uh, you know, technology. I mean, the science is just unbelievable here. Absolutely. You have to have inherited that DNA Understood. from someone back in that tree. And so hopefully you'll get matches to different lines, their mother's side, their father's side. In some cases, you get all four grandparents' lines. And there's 
we all have unique family trees, except for our full siblings. And so if you're able to put enough of those ancestors back in that tree and piece it together, that's going to narrow it down to just one immediate family. Sometimes you can't get quite that far, so you might have to look at first cousins, if you can only get to grandparents. But that's how we do it. We're not using close relatives in most of these cases. It's usually people who won't even know the suspect. Understood. You still need a name, though. You need somewhere to start. So they have to have something that helps them uh, develop an understanding. You know, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think Chris Cuomo understands this science. I really don't think he does at all because... Yeah, he seems puzzled. He's totally puzzled. One of the things is that, okay, we came up with a family tree. Let's see the age group grouping of who we got in that tree. And let's see if this person has any connection to Moscow, Idaho. And let's see if this person... That is how it's done. There's, of course, it's not just boom. Here's the guy's name. Go get him. There's other investigative uh, resources that have to be tapped into, in addition to the genetic genealogy. And that's, I mean, I, I think you know, I would really, I want to get, um, I want to get CC Moore to come on our show because I, I think she's brilliant, and I, I think that uh, you know, I, I wanted to hear her talk more about the science. But it seemed that, you know, he wanted to talk more than her. And uh, let's play it a little more. Right. So we wouldn't All right. have so his that name. is we our last question, which is. Right. But the question is, why would you have any name um, like that that had to have some type of other investigative link that we have to figure out uh, from the authorities when they give it to us? Now, the only other question mark, and I'll use this to go into break. There are a lot of questions here, obviously, and that's OK. Uh, the authorities deserve confidence after making this arrest, assuming they can make it stick. Um, in his past, is it true that he had a history of drug use? And if so, did he ever have any kind of interchange with authorities uh, or any facilities where they had DNA available? Uh, that's something we'll discuss going into the next segment. Because as we're developing a picture of who knew him and how they knew him, uh, there are some more aspects to him that may have made him uh, more identifiable. So, Cece, thank you very much. Uh, so they, there you have it in regards to that. He, um, again, we said his DNA was not in the database. But it turns out his father's DNA was in the database. And I, I don't know if uh, Chris Cuomo fully understands that you connect the dots to lots more investigative resources, not just the genetic genealogy isn't going to hand the police the name of the person who did this. You know, there's a lot more investigation that has to be done. Now you get, uh, uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the legwork of detectives in a case like this. So you get a list of names that there's some familiar DNA in this group of names. Now you have to look at every uh, person in that group. Uh, You're going to go by some ages, I would think, first, because if someone is real young or real old, they're not going to fall into the category of the murder in this case. And then like you said, Bill, we're going to look at maybe a connection to Moscow, Idaho. And then you're going to, you know, you're going to have to do some legwork. You're going to have to do some interviews. And when you do interviews, the first interview you're going to do, you're going to talk to the people and you're going to ask them, is there someone in your family who could be familiar with this college over in uh, Idaho? And that's how you're going to develop 
uh, a suspect. That's probably how they did it. And I think I just uh, can't even explain how euphoric I would be if I had pulled up in front of this guy's house and saw that white Elantra. I think that that would have been like uh, unbelievably exciting knowing, all right, now we're in the right ballpark with the right perpetrator. Perhaps they knew it before they even went there. They may have ran his name to see if they had his name to see if he owned that type of vehicle, but not knowing and pulling, doing a surveillance by that house and seeing that white Elantra, there, there could be nothing better than that with regard to this case. Someone, you know, is, is again, uh, usable for ID, not CODIS. I do not think his will go into CODIS until he has been found guilty before sentencing. According to this, could be updated by now. Stay. I, I believe that his, his DNA is going into CODIS right now. I don't think you need to be convicted. I think you need to be arrested to have your DNA. I could be wrong uh, to have your DNA taken. And look, the, his DNA didn't have to be taken via his arrest. They got it surreptitiously. That can be put into CODIS. Right. So, you know, again. Yeah, I think what that person's talking about, Billy, is when you're incarcerated, uh, you know, you're convicted. Now you're going into uh, incarceration stage. There's specific felonies and some misdemeanors if you're incarcerated on where you have to give. I, this is how it is in New York State. You have to give a, a DNA sample that goes into CODIS. I think that's what they're referring to. But like you said, in this particular case, that DNA sample that was unknown taken from the crime scene that they believed was the murderer that might've went into CODIS itself. So again, uh, there's some legal mumbo jumbo there, but at the end of the day, his, his DNA is going into the system. Uh, KH Walker. Th thanks for this. Uh, he had fingerprints on file from a security guard job. So very, you know, and again, I don't know if, um, if they had usable liftable prints right. from the crime scene, right. but this would absolutely, uh, they could check it against the APHIS database, which stands for Automated Fingerprint Identification System, which is a national fingerprint system. And if they got an ID on that from the crime scene, it's it's icing on the cake. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. And if you want to um, support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships uh, with five different levels. And we appreciate our subscribers and fans. You know, someone got down on us on yesterday's show for not saying uh, that um, – Brian Kohlberger is innocent to proven guilty. So I'll say that right now. So uh, the people that um, need that, uh, you know, obviously that's our system. He's innocent to proven guilty. What we're trying to uh, though, deliver to you is the resources and the evidence that they're developing against him. We're going to speak about more of the evidence too. And some of the strongest evidence can be his digital record. And what do I mean by that? His cell phone. Oh, my God. His cell phone hitting cell towers. Where was it? You know, the night of the of the murders, did he have his cell phone on? Sometimes killers that think of everything don't think of that. They don't think, oh, I have my cell phone with me. It tracks me everywhere. In fact, when the FBI was following him for four days, did he, in fact, have his cell phone on him? That His social media. We know he had a social media presence. We know that he 
Uh, I don't think on Instagram you would call them your friends. You follow someone. He had followed the three female victims on Instagram. Apparently, he had a Facebook profile also. So all of these things are huge pieces of evidence. His vehicle, the computer in his vehicle, again, traveling to Pennsylvania. How many toll booths did he go through? Plate readers. Plate readers. All of those things. A lot of those things, again, we take for granted. And maybe uh, Moscow, Idaho didn't have those things. Uh, New York City has cameras and license plate readers and red light cameras and someone's cameras. You can't even go 50 yards without you know getting a warning on your ways. There's a red light camera 50 feet ahead or there's a, a speed trap camera. So all of those things are twofold uh, for the government. And one is it's an open cash register. And I'm not convinced that it's for safety. I think it's a cash register for the local government. And the other thing is it's a camera attached to that cash register that takes a picture of your plate. Not usually very usable as an identification, but it can identify the car. You know, Billy, what you're talking about here, and I'm going to use a canonism, perpology. They're going to want to do the perpology and get every bit of information. Perhaps he used a credit card to purchase some type of a drink or something of that nature after he left the location. Now, if he went into a 7-Eleven, let's say, or a gas station, uh, again, you might have video of him. You could see the clothing that he was wearing. Now they can try to find those clothing to see if there's blood evidence. There's a lot of work to be done. The perpology is very, very important at this point. I am sure that's what's going to take place from this point going forward. And again, like I said, now that we have the person we believe in, I think they're very confident, even though everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. That's our system of just justice. I think that all of the law enforcement enforcement agencies involved are very satisfied that this is the perpetrator. I don't think there's any question about that. If there are other people involved that helped him, let's say with the murders or disposing of evidence or helped him, uh, no, had knowledge of his uh, criminal activity and helped him to hide out whatever it is, those things will play out going forward as well. But I think that all of the uh, perpology is so, so important. Things will slow down a little bit now. They'll be taking it at a better pace. And again, the uh, district attorney's office or the prosecutor has probably got a big hand in the investigation right now as far as uh, search warrants and all the other different uh, legal things that have to be done. And again, keeping things very close to the vest was very smart in this case. You were dealing with someone who was home, I wouldn't say a genius, but very, very intelligent, studying criminal justice. So again, the fact that they kept it very close to the vest was very, very important and smart. The Sit Down, a crime history podcast. Thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. Also, Schmitty, thank you. Does law enforcement plan the time of arrest? It seems quite uh, seems quite fitting. I uh, just lost you, Schmitty, uh, that uh, they, they um, I lost your, uh, it seems quite fitting. Do they plan? Yes, they do plan. And a lot of it was contingent upon when the warrants were drawn up. They warrants, you can't plan on how long the warrant is going to take to be drawn up by the judge. So they could be waiting, ready to go, but they can't go until they have the warrant that says they can. And this, this I believe, was a no-knock warrant. You know, the, that was one of the things that in all the defund the police thing, there's like, we can't have no-knock warrants. In a situation like this, you know, a no-knock warrant is written because of the three E's. Evidence 
endanger escape. You can destroy evidence, you can endanger the police, or you can escape. That is the reason for a no-knock warrant, the three E's. There's another canonism, although I didn't invent that. Uh, <laughs> Dylan, Dylan James, thank you for the 199 Super Chat. Will they thank question you. the parents he was staying with? Absolutely, but the parents, like, look, it is your right um, to refuse to answer questions. That goes to the parents, too. If you're not under arrest, and even if you are under arrest, once they read you Miranda, you can invoke counsel, which I almost guarantee he invoked counsel. He's a PhD student in criminal justice. He knows what time it is, you know? Billy, uh, you're talking about that no-knock warrant, that 3 a.m. warrant. They did surveillance for four days. So, again, uh, I think they were probably very comfortable with the fact that they thought they'd be able to execute the warrant at 3 a.m. in the morning and be able to take him into custody without incident based on that surveillance as well as, listen, it's three o'clock in the morning. Most people are usually asleep at that time and you want to use the element of surprise. And again, going back to the, to the purpology, he may have been studying these victims and thinking, well, it's a Saturday night. Maybe they're drinking uh, he can go in and do whatever he had to do. They could possibly be a little bit intoxicated. And again, he went into the location at three or four o'clock in the morning to do the dastardly deed. So again, this was not your ordinary uh, violent criminal. This was a very methodical, calculating psychopath. I think that's the only way to describe him, a very calculating and uh, a very, very evil psychopath. You know, um, Phil, I... I I get all of that. All right, I get it. He's smart. He's this, he's that, he's smart. But let me tell you something. The smartest people on earth cannot outsmart the police. No. Because the, the field that the police play on is their home field. It's their home court. All right? So some smart ass comes in and thinks he's smarter than everybody. And guess what? You can be tricked by the police because they do this for a living. All right? So, yeah, he may be smart. He's a criminal justice PhD student. I mean, this... The first video we showed uh, in regards to the FBI agent that said he doesn't think this is his first day at the rodeo. He thinks very possibly uh, he killed before. And I agree with him. I totally agree with him. And, folks, just to know, right now, killing four people at one time is not a serial killer. That's considered mass murder. Right. If he did another murder at a different time with time in between, that's a serial killer. It, it's it's two or more incidents with time in between. So if they do find that he, in fact, killed someone else a while ago, then he graduates to being a serial killer, which is a distinct possibility. I didn't think so. Again, I make lots of mistakes in my assessment I'm not a behavioral analyst. And if, you know, following this case, there's some really bright people that worked on this case. And there's some really bright people that are FBI behavioral analysis. But none of them, of course, hit it exactly on the head. Some of them were pretty close and did a good job with this. But it's impossible to predict exactly. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that all the profilers uh, that are out there and all the profiles that we even talked about some profiles, I doubt very highly that anybody thought this was going to be a, a criminal justice uh, PhD student. So again, uh, 
if you look at the questions that he asked when he sent out uh, questions on Reddit to, to other criminals about emotion, about your thought process, uh, the uh, all the different questions are in the newspaper today. He did extensive research on how to commit murder, crime, and uh, he wanted to get the psyche of the people that had already did it. And I don't think that he thought 100% that he wasn't going to get caught because most of these psychopaths, they know that inevitably they're going to get caught. I think it was just an overwhelming compulsion to kill. He was definitely, definitely focused on uh, criminal behavior. He was uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, very, very OCD, so to speak, about uh, murder and, uh, you know, uh, different criminals, criminal activity, criminal uh, thinking. So again, uh, this was a, a lot of uh, effort and a lot of uh, research went into this. You know, folks, I got, I know everyone's talking about it in the chat. I got to just read about his, this was on Reddit, about his survey that he was using as an assignment for his PhD. Uh, he released an online questionnaire on, on Reddit while working on his research pa paper in an attempt to understand the psychology of criminals, he wrote, my name is Brian and I'm inviting you to participate in a research project that seeks to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. Coburg continued while urging criminals to contribute to his study. In particular, this study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience. In the event that your most recent offense was not one that led to conviction, you may still participate. So what is, is that really in the interest of science or is that in the interest, in the interest of a warped mind there? Bill, think about this. I, I have further uh, statements that he made. After committing the crime, what were you thinking and feeling? Think about that. Did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? What were you thinking and feeling at this point? He was so obsessed with the, 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 the criminal activity. And I'm going to say the murders, he couldn't control his compulsion. And that's what I think led to the killing of these four people. I think the possibility does exist that he may have killed before. I don't think that that's uh, out of the realm of possibility, but I think 100%, if he was not arrested, he was going to do this again. He was going to kill again. This is how obsessed this individual psychopath was with, uh, with killing. You know, one of the things that I just wanted to um, to also mention is that everyone wants to know the answer to this, and is that motive. What was his motive? And again, motive is not a necessary component to get a conviction for murder, but it's something that we all and juries all want to understand. Why did he do this? What the hell was his motive? A lot of us... Um, amateur uh, or amateur or behavioral an analysts think that he must have been disrespected, you know, uh, by one of these girls, because uh, again, you, we talk about the behavioral part of it. One had more severe wounds than the other ones. This was a rage crime. Using a knife was a very, very personal way to do it. So all of these things we want to know the answer to. We want to also know you know, I mentioned that old term we learned in the police department. It's called NIATWI, and I don't know who invented that acronym. And it's, it's the last letter of, of what I'm going to just say right now. When, where, who, what, how, and why. We want all of those questions answered. When, where, who, 
what, how, and why. And we want the answers to that. But will we Will we get, we know the, the when and the where. We know the who, the four kids, the what and the how and the why. So the what we know, but the how and the why we don't know. And that's what juries want to know. They want to know the how and the why. So when we, we, don't, we don't know specifically right now, did he walk up there and park his car far away from the location? What entrance did he go in? What entrance did he leave from? All of the, these are questions that we have. And I, I said, as I said, I almost guarantee he lawyered up immediately. So we're not going to get the answer from him. So again, science comes into play to answer these questions. Billy, one of the last things that he asked in that survey was, why did you choose that victim or target over others? That's very, very important. And again, I think it goes to what we talked about. We feel that there might have been some type of an interaction with one of the victims and he was either disrespected or felt slighted. Uh, they said he was almost like antisocial. Again, uh, that might be what have compulsed him to go after these victims. And I think you're going to have a 100% possibility that he either reconned the location or had been inside of that location. I don't think that he just went there blindly and got in, slipped in, killed four people and slipped out. He definitely uh, was familiar with the location. We talked about that when we were talking about a, a close geographic uh, area of the perpetrator. Most perpetrators will like to feel like they're in their com comfort zone. They want to be familiar with the area where they're going to commit a crime. It's not going to be somebody that was never there before, come you know, two, three, four, five hours away and go commit a crime and then leave. Usually they want to be within their comfort zone. That's very important. I think that goes to the profiling part of uh, what we talked about. And again, um, you know, uh, we need to really uncover that. What was the what was the motive for this? I think that that's going to be very important. Again, like you said, he probably lawyered up and is not going to talk about that. But uh, there might be other ways to figure it out. Let's say social media, text messages, different things like that. Uh, Mandy Trout, thank you so much for the $5 super chat. Do you think they will go back to the footage at the vigil inside the school and see if he was there? Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. I have said numerous times in a lot of homicide investigations, I would love to take pictures of the crowd to see who was out there. Of Lots course. of times the killer could be out there, but also when canvassing and uh, going to interview people, when they said, oh, I was, I, I was uptown, I was downtown. You say, oh, really? How were you caught in this picture right after the murder then, right, if you were right. uptown or downtown? So it helped us in interviewing people. Mandy Trout, thank you for that uh, comment. Excellent. Thank you. you know, now look, there is not as much pressure. There's still a lot of investigation to do, but the pressure isn't there. Now they can do it and, and just feel confident we got someone. Now we got this chocolate cake we made. Now we're going to start putting icing on it, you know, and we're exactly. going to make this cake taste even better because – they can build this case and make this case as strong as possible about this guy. So every possible loophole that some defense attorney will look at, you're going to slam the door on it, you know? And that's why they got to do this methodically and they got to take their time. And guess what? Still keep their mouth shut. The Absolutely. media is dying. The media is getting information, obviously, that it's probably leaking from somewhere because they are absolutely getting information out there. Look, the genealogy thing, the police never spoke about that. They got that from somewhere. So I think it's, look, 
again, keeping it close to the vest. They were criticized. Uh, I think the media gets very frustrated when they don't know what actually happened. Uh, let's uh, let's face see. it, Bill. This was an emotional case. These are four young, beautiful uh, college students, and I get the emotion part of it and the frustration that came out. I get that too. But again, you, you, you're making the point. Uh, they played it right. Uh, we called it from the beginning. You don't have to release every single little thing, and I think uh, it was the right move in this case. Hey, on this, we have a, a, a retired FBI agent. We have obviously CC Moore on the top right, and on bo the bottom left is um, a, a, a educator, a PhD, and of course we have Chris Cuomo asking the questions. Let's play a little bit of this. Big questions right now, other than the obvious of you know how do they know this is the guy? I'll start with you, CC. What's your big question right now? Did they have DNA? I think it looks like they did, but they have not confirmed that yet. And so that is my biggest question. Mm. And of course, they could have gotten his DNA while they were surveilling him, depending on where he went and how they went. And they may have picked up something that he had handled and they got a sample there. Um, Chris mm -hmm. Mahandi, what is your question? Uh, my question is, um, what nexus was there between these victims you know, and the, you know, the suspect. And I believe that there must be one. Was he on the periphery? How did their paths cross? Because I do believe that there is a nexus that we're going to find out more about. Yeah. And Jimmy, um, that is something that you were informing in your early perspective. I uh, hear as we start the next hour of our special coverage into the Idaho murders of those four students, authorities believe uh, they have the man responsible. They have charged Brian Kohlberger, 28 years old, with four counts of first-degree murder and felony burglary, uh, which is a layered charge to say we know he was in the house and this is what we think he did there. Uh, Jimmy, you had said uh, lust, loot, love, and there was one other one. What was the fourth L? Loathing. Loathing. Hatred. Um, so how did... You know, it's funny. I, in all my years of homicide, I never, ever heard that. <laughs> <laughs> the four L's. That must be a, an FBI thing. Uh, it, it's um, lust, loot, love, and loathing. I, I never heard that before. Phil, uh, Phil, have you ever heard that before? I've never heard it, but it actually fits. I, I like it. I, yeah, it, I never heard that, though. You're right, Bill. Yeah, it's. Uh, but I've since we've been covering this case, and in another case, it was brought up uh, by the FBI, the four L's. And, you know, I have to remember what lust, loot, love, and loathing. So, yeah. yeah. Now I I won't be able to use that because I'm not in homicide anymore, but I think I knew what it was anyway. But uh, that's the, the four motivations uh, to commit murder. Did he know them? Did he know them? Uh, that's going to be a very specific thing. What is your main question at this time? Yeah, Chris, my main question would be, Where's the digital exhaust? Much of this looks like it's predicated on DNA evidence. And look, we've only been able to do that since about 1986 or 1987, make cases on DNA. But I want to know who he's talked to. I want a complete link analysis done. And then I want to scrub signal intelligence. Everything today is digital exhaust, Chris, cell phones. You know, I spoke yesterday about uh, data mining uh, or mind mapping, it's called. And basically, data mining is putting every single thing you know about a person. And somewhere in everything you know about a person is going to be the answer to the, to the murder. And that includes millions of things. Like, for example, the white Hyundai. That 
was a huge thing. So in interviewing or creating data mining or mind mapping of an individual, the car was a huge, huge thing. And I'm oversimplifying it, but every, for example, if you put had a blackboard and put someone's name in the middle and you said, okay, where do they live? You put their address. They have brothers and sisters, mother and father, what's their names? What kind of car do they own? Do they work? Do they go to school? Who are their friends? You know, so before you know it, an entire blackboard is filled with things somewhere in that data mining, somewhere in that mind map is the answer. And th that's, I think, what uh, former agent Galliano is saying right now. Going through it using your easy pass, license plate readers. I want to see all that. I think that's going to be laid out here pretty quickly by the police. Mm, this is not law and order. Uh, it's always about the compendium of analysis. It's uh, rarely just about that one fatal flaw. But here's one thing we know now as we go to Gus Dusty in the control room. This murder scene tells us a story also. Uh, this was not random. This wasn't it started one way, but then went another one. Uh, these were brutal, multiple murders uh, and an, an odd trait of leaving two people alive. Uh, so either it speaks to an intimacy uh, or a psycho, you know, a psychopathy, uh, somebody who is literally psychopathic. So with that, Dusty, who do you have on the line who wants to talk to these experts? Okay, well, we actually have. I, I don't think we need to take their phone calls, but, you know, something about, you know, he's got three experts on the screen. He's got C.C. Moore, he's got James Galliano, and he's got the, um, uh, the, uh, Professor Chris uh, Mahandi, but yet he steps on them and, and he speaks like the expert. Let them speak. You know, you're not an expert on this topic. I, I know he's annoying to me. He really is. I don't know. You leave it to the experts, so to speak, right, Bill? Well, yeah, but you got three of them, but you're yeah. you're stepping on them. You're stepping. I mean, how is that egotistical? Like, if you have a brilliant guest on, like CC Moore. James Galliano is a retired FBI agent. I know he's studying for his PhD at St. John's University, and he has a PhD academic. But now he's spitting out stuff like he's the expert, and he's not. He's not. Well, isn't the idea of bringing a guest on is to let them talk? So I guess, uh, you know, he's he's a little narcissist, I guess you could say. A little. <laughs> uh, I, I think, he, well, well, I don't want to spend the show talking about him. Folks, again, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like podcasts from a police perspective, you're in the right place. If you're not subscribed to us, just go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. And if you want to uh, support us, we have a Patreon three, with three different levels and a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. Again, this is a fascinating, fascinating case. And it's in no way is this case over with. There's tons more of investigation to do because how horrible would it be if you arrested someone like this and you lost that trial? And that's one of the big reasons they keep things so close to the vest is that they got to build this case and they got to cross their T's and dot their I's. Phil, just want to do this quick. 
Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray is a great defense attorney, and a big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories, and a great guy. Happy New Year, Absolutely. Joe. Absolutely. Uh, Schmitty, the investigatory work is just so fascinating. You know, it really is. You know, it, it's it's putting a, uh, a puzzle together. And the biggest part of this puzzle that was solved was, of course, in the identification of the perpetrator, which is the most difficult part. And now, again, uh, they have a lot more investigative work to do to keep building this case, to build a building one brick at a time and build the case one brick at a time. And uh, we also, uh, as part of our show, would be remiss not to say, we had doubts, myself included, about the Moscow Police Department. They did a fantastic job, and I'm going to say it right now. With the FBI, with the Idaho State Police, you cannot argue with the results they did a fantastic job. And again, they I think they admit they're inexperienced, but they got the necessary help and resources at the very beginning. And that enabled them to uh, make this arrest. You know, Billy, I had said previously on one of the other shows, it would have been an honor for me to be involved in this investigation. And I don't think I would have done anything but eat, sleep and drink this case 24 hours a day till we would have gotten to the point where we are today with an arrest. I think that's what the mindset was of all of the investigators. They really deserve kudos. Uh, it was tough. It was the holiday season. It was very emotional. It was four young kids. You had families that were really, really upset and emotional. And uh, I just, uh, I echo your words, Bill. I think uh, they did a great job. And uh, there was some doubt at times. I mean, they hadn't had a murder there in seven years and people were a little concerned about that. But once you get the proper uh, backing, the state police, the FBI, uh, all the tools that were in their toolbox, and they were able to successfully uh, make an arrest in this case. Absolutely. Magical Mary, can PA interrogate him or did they wait for ID? No one can interrogate him if he invoked counsel. Right. Uh, yes. P if if he was willing to talk, yes. Uh, the Moscow police, maybe probably with a really experienced investigator from the Idaho State Police or maybe even the FBI would interrogate him. But I'm pretty sure for the fact that he is a criminal justice P PhD student, he most likely uh, invoked counsel and refused to make a statement. What do you think about that, Phil? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I'm sure that there were uh, law enforcement officers from the Moscow police, as well as the state police, like you said, as well as the FBI. Uh, they had time to put together a team and get over to uh, Pennsylvania. So, uh, you know, with all of his criminal justice background, you would think the first thing he would say is, I want a lawyer, unless, unless, uh, he wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to be caught, which is some of the psyche of, uh, you know, these, uh, psychopaths, they, they know they're going to get caught and, uh, you know, they're, they're of the belief that they'll cooperate. I don't know if that happened in this case. I don't think so. sounds like he probably lawyered up. I want to play a little bit, uh, of this right here. Uh, let me just get this, uh. And this is probably the easiest thing for us to speculate on. Bobby, 
you've run investigations uh, like this. My speculation is the last thing they want to do is swing and miss. It's not like they got this guy at the airport on his way out of the country. Um, take us inside the room in terms of making a decision about making to arrest uh, making an arrest in a high profile situation like this. I know you always want to be certain that you can make probable cause, but what's the heightened sensitivity here? How real is it? Well, you have. I don't get that. You always want to be certain that you can make probable cause. No, you cannot make an arrest without probable cause. I, I, I don't know. I, I just. He, he I mean, just doesn't understand the law and he doesn't. He's understand got a law the- degree, Phil. He's got a law degree from Fordham. Yeah, but he's not practicing it. He doesn't know about law enforcement. He doesn't know the particulars of what we do as law enforcement officers. He's he's an amateur at it. I'm sorry. You and, know let, and, let, and let the experts speak. Yeah. Prosecutors, Chris, that are going to possibly seek a death penalty in this case. Death penalty cases have much more reviews, much more appeals, um, and, and they're just much closely more watched. Um, and so you had the agents or the detectives working together, and they're really waiting to see when the prosecutors are comfortable going forward, because that's that's who's going to stand up in court, right? And so they had to be they had to be very certain not only that they had enough probable cause to get an arrest warrant, but they have enough to prove at trial and get the conviction, or else they wouldn't go forward. Remember, with double double jeopardy, we get one shot at this. So I think that they have. You know, we're talking about this piece of evidence or that piece of it. I think they have multiple pieces of evidence. I think they do have his DNA at the scene that matches the DNA they got him. I think they may have a witness that may have seen him leave that house that night. I think that they've got, um, you know, they've got the, the car and somebody that may have been in that car. I think there's multiple things that they have that built up to this case. We'll find a little bit of that when the probable cause affidavit's released. We won't find all of it out because the prosecutors like to hold back. They just need to meet that probable cause burden in that affidavit. They don't want to give their whole case away yet. So we'll find some of these answers out. Unfortunately, we won't find all of them out next week. One more, uh, Bobby, uh, the extradition hearing. What do they what show do they have to make there that might give us more insight into uh, why they want this guy? Or is that low? Because Pennsylvania can just say, yeah, go ahead, take him. Yeah, there's only one issue in, in an extradition. And we used to refer to extradition hearings on the federal level as identity hearings, because the only the only issue is, are you the person named in the warrant? Because if it was a common name, Bob Smith or something, like, oh, I'm not that Bob Smith in that warrant. But he that he's not the person in the issue. That's the only issue. Most of the time, they waive that because you know this is a guy. They they have the goods. If, if they if he pushes for an extradition hearing, it'll take a couple more days. But it's a slam dunk. He's the guy. Not that he's guilty, but he's the guy that's named in the affidavit um, in in support of the search of the arrest warrant. Jennifer, insight into this idea of uh, if you were a part of this investigation, all the media scrutiny, it's a national news story. And they say, yeah, we think this is the person. I know that investigators want to cross the T's and dot the I's. But isn't there a heightened level of internal scrutiny in a situation like this to not swing and miss? Absolutely, Chris. Uh, They have dotted their uh, eyes and crossed their T's and, before they ever went out to make this arrest. And quite frankly, uh, the search warrants that are being executed uh, today and possibly even still as we speak are going to bolster their case even more, I believe. They're looking for that knife. They are looking for DNA from those victims. They're looking for indicia of this crime. And I think their case is going to be bolstered uh, once the returns from those warrants are received.
We are showing men through a window in what is believed to be uh, Koberger's on-campus apartment at Washington State University. Uh, we had uh, one of our reporters there earlier saying that she had seen them go inside. They came in a, a pickup truck and that they are obviously canvassing the apartment. That's why we were throwing you that. Uh, now, Jennifer, uh, you had said early on, I think this guy was in the house waiting for them. Uh, we do not see Koberger in any of the video that has been released in terms of at the food truck or walking down the street. Uh, he does not appear to be the person they were with. He also shouldn't be with them because he's a 28-year-old doctoral student, not a college kid uh, in Idaho. So uh, what do you? what is just your general take of who this guy is and what they're saying about him? Well, I think there is a nexus. I've personally seen it on social media where he was following uh, Maddie and on another one platform following Maddie and Kaylee. So I think this was very well planned out. I believe he did surveillance at that house. I believe he knew their general patterns. Uh, part of the reason I think he targeted this house was because it was really a sitting duck target. You know, you know, Phil, I I want to know, and I, I mean, none of the that stuff does she know as a fact. Uh, she's sort of surmising that. But I want to know, and this is part of we, what we spoke about yesterday, the perpology, which is a canonism, the study of the perp. And was he ever in that house before? And very easy to find out. You interview all the sorority members. You interview all the fraternity members those the two roommates that weren't killed do you know this guy have you ever seen this guy i guarantee a few have seen this guy before he may have even been in that house before if that is the case that is a slam dunk that i mean it's, it's not going to solve the case but it bolsters the case it makes the case even stronger because it shows he knows the house he knows these girls he's been in that house before he knows how to get in that house. He knows how to get out of the house. He knows where he could park his car far away without being seen. So all of those things can be answered through what I call perpology, the study of the perp. Let's speak to everyone. His picture's all over now. You think they're probably getting phone calls as we speak saying, wait, I had a run-in with this guy. I know who this guy, I, I saw him here. I, how about the local bars in Moscow? He's probably been there also. Do the bartenders know him? Does the infamous Adam that well, I think uh, Chris Como referred to him as, uh, and I don't mean infamous Adam. Adam's just a regular bartender. Right. His name came up in this investigation. It has nothing to do with anything. But you know what I'm saying, Phil? That's part yeah. of the backgrounding of this perpetrator. 100%, and I think there's a probably a good probability he was in that house. We saw that there was the party where uh, none of the occupants were home. They said some may have been home and said they weren't there or whatever. But the bottom line is a lot of partying went on in this house. He was in the circles. And, Bill, I'm glad you brought up the thing about the bars because most of the bars in the college towns, you cannot get into one of those bars. They scan your ID. Most of the kids that are underage will have a fake ID, but they do scan it, and there's it's kept in a database. They may have uh, him in the same bars as uh, these victims at the same time. So there's a good possibility of that. And the fact that he was following him on social media means that that's where uh, you know he was either – 
following them because he knew them or trying to meet them. And he was targeting his, uh, his uh, uh, eventual uh, victims, I think. You know, Phil, that's, that's actually a brilliant thing that uh, I think um, uh, security in bars. And I think what, which led to that was unfortunately Dorian's murder of a Met Sanguian in, uh, in Manhattan. She was actually killed by a bar bouncer. Right. Uh, who was turned out was a serial rapist. That led to the licensing of security guards in New York State, and probably other states followed through with that. But it also led to what you're describing. They actually take your license and scan it into their database. So if some nefarious crime happens in that location, they have every single person that was there. It's a lot of to do with liability, too, because if an underage drinker is in there and something happens, they leave and they crash and they kill people or whatever, they're going to turn around and say, hey, we had their ID scanned in. This is what they showed us. They were, you know, it says they were 21 or whatever the case may be. So, again, that's going to be part of the canonism, the purpology. They're going to want to do all of this work. They're going to get it done. It's going to take some time. But like you said, it's a little bit more relaxed pace now. And uh, I think that every nail that can put into this scumbag's coffin, let's get it done. 100%. You know, it's, uh, you know, and if he, look, they have time to find out as we, the first video we played of the FBI agent that said, you know, he has all of the traits of a potential serial killer right now. He's a mass killer. Has he done this before that would make him a serial killer? So they have time to find this out. They have time to do this investigation and do a really, which they already have. They've done an amazing job, but they can continue doing this amazing job because the case that you now need to build against. And look, I would love to find out about more of the forensic evidence. Did he leave bloody footprints? Uh, did he leave hair? Did he leave fibers? What's the nature of the DNA? Uh, his DNA, you know, you can't, someone mentioned before, oh, there's so much DNA in that house. Uh, defense attorney's going to, no, no, he's not because if his DNA is blood DNA coupled with the victim's DNA, there's no way that that could be confused with any DNA that was previously in that house. Right. Coming blood is going to be a slam dunk. Right. It's a slam dunk. You can't say, oh, this was from the party last week. No, it's not. It's from what happened tonight. And, uh, you know, so look, there's a lot of, I find it so interesting, even as someone that's presenting this case and analyzing this case. And we, I think I counted less than, I think I did 30 or 31 episodes on just this case. I haven't done anything else since this happened on November 13th. And um, it is fascinating because it touches every aspect of, of homicide investigation. And again, we cannot lose sight of the fact that there's four real people that were murdered here, young kids, 20 and 21, and four families that lost their son, their daughters, and a university system that was just paralyzed over this heinous, heinous crime. Yes, absolutely, Billy. I think um, our thoughts and prayers have to stay with the families, but also with the investigators. You know, like I said earlier, if I was on this case, I wouldn't be doing anything but working on this case. My, your life just gets put on hold. So let's keep those people in our thoughts and prayers. And then moving forward, the prosecutors and the investigators are going to continue to carry the ball down, you know, for the touchdown, uh, getting the conviction on this bastard. 
Um, let's just keep them in our thoughts and prayers. And, uh, you know, the families, they're never going to get closure. I've said that before in these type of cases, when you lose a child, there is no such thing as closure. Do you get justice? Yes. Are you able to move forward? Hopefully so. Closure. I don't think there's any such thing as closure when you lose a child. Absolutely. Dina, uh, Dini Mack, he's a homicidal maniac. Nobody knows at this time if he's a serial killer or a thrill killer. Well, Dini, Adini, that's my whole point, is that if they find through his DNA, which now can go into CODIS, and they compare his DNA against forensic DNA, which is DNA that's in CODIS that's unidentified from a crime scene, collected and, from the crime scene. and it hits, boom, he immediately becomes a serial killer. Two or more killing incidents at different times with time in between. That's, I believe, the FBI's definition of what a serial killer is. You know, folks, I hope, to, you know, you, our point of view, we're, we're not perfect. We don't know everything. I think we know a lot, you know. And, uh, again, we try to present these cases, and we try to educate also. We try to teach uh, from our experience, from our uh, our education. Uh, we try to teach what, what this is all about. And there's been so many, so many, and I call them talking heads on this case, some better than others, some – uh, couldn't find a bad guy in a state prison with the help of the warden. I was waiting to use that one. <laughs> Another can canonism. <laughs> but some of them brilliant. And some I loved Craig McCrary, the old-time hairbag. I'll use a cop word, a hairbag. Old-time hairbag FBI agent that was the best, I think, behavioral analyst they had on. He was on Banfield. And I really, really liked his presentation. On Banfield, there's some other ones. Bobby Chacon, I think he's pretty pretty right on. You know, uh, there was that older woman. I don't know her name. Also, a retired FBI agent who happens to be a college professor now. I thought she was excellent too. And there were some other ones that uh, I think were were just off the mark. But that's okay. People can look at me and say they called me Pop, <laughs> and I said that's Sergeant, Sergeant Pop to you. Kid. That's Sergeant Pop to you you young whippersnapper, and now you're banished. <laughs> so, folks, uh, I'm going to give Phil a last word, then I'm going to give my parting remarks. Uh, Phil, go ahead, last words. Last word. You know, that statement that he made, Bill and I know what a red herring is. To me, I think that was a statement was a red herring. What, it, what I mean by that is he made that statement. Uh, I think he said, um, uh, did you arrest anybody else in this case? Uh, trying to throw investigators off. And he might be also... Uh, maybe trying to think about a defense down the line. Um, in the chat early, I saw that someone said that I arrested them in 2000 or somewhere around there and I changed their life. God bless. I hope everything's going well for you. I didn't, I wasn't able to find it. It was really early in the show, but uh, again, thoughts and prayers for these people. Happy new year to every one of our subscribers, our fans. Uh, God bless this nation. I think we have a great nation. We have great law enforcement offices. I think uh, it's all been shown here that good, hard police work. There's a lot of tools in the toolbox. They used all the tools. They came to, so far, an arrest, let's say a successful conclusion for now. Let's get them convicted uh, and hopefully the death penalty, and uh, we'll see where we go from here. Folks, I just want to say that we, as I said, we followed this case from the very beginning. It's an unbelievable case, and we can't lose sight that four people lost their lives. And as far as uh, closure, there's not closure. There'll never be closure because there's 
four parents out there, more than four parents, four families out there that lost their loved ones. But I want to also point to you guys. I just want to say thank you for all you guys who supported us in 2022. Uh, Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories is growing, and it's growing because of you. And I think we're good. I really do think we're good. And um, look, I've never been a humble person. I speak <laughs> I speak what I, what I believe. And I believe we have a really good podcast. And I just want to thank all you guys for following us and supporting us in 2022. And I hope you stay around for 2023. I want everyone to have a happy new year. And God bless everyone. Have a great night. Stay safe, everybody. And happy new year. One episode. Just ain't enough